0: Good morning. It's good to be with y'all today. My name is Chuck Askew, and I am the campus minister for RUF at NC State University and Meredith College. It's a campus ministry that is connected to the denomination that this church is a part of. And so in that way, I hope that you think about us as your campus ministry, because we really do serve on your behalf, uh, reaching the nations by going onto the campus and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a pleasure to be with you here today and to bring us into God's Word. And as I was reflecting on what to teach on this week, this passage is what came to my mind um, because it's a passage that I know I need to steep in. Just as you take a tea bag and put it in hot water so that the, the tea gets into the water, this is what we need to do in times like this, times of tragedy to immerse ourselves in what will strengthen us. And so this passage came to my mind because I don't know about you, but often in the midst of tragedies, my temptation is to move towards cynicism and despair. In the midst of the news that we've seen over the past few weeks, perhaps you've begun to feel fatigue with all the tragedy. There are many articles that were written about something called compassion fatigue in the midst of the the COVID pandemic's highest points, where different people in the helping professions were experiencing high levels of burnout. That was because they were dealing with so much trauma, so much hard things, that they began to be worn down by all the sadnesses, by all the challenges that they dealt with day after day, and began to lose strength, and began to despair, and began to long to give up, to quit, To no longer be caring people it's easy for us in the midst of tragedies to experience that kind of compassion fatigue but the way that we deal with that is to not give up our hope but to recalibrate our hopes there's an expression in sailing that goes like this you cannot control the wind but you can adjust the sails. And what I hope that we do today in the midst of the storms that are around us is not give up because we can't control the wind or the storms, but to adjust our sails so that we are driven to where we need to be, to find again our hope, not in this world, but in the Father, in our Creator, in our God. Today, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it with three different points. A more glorious place, a more glorious people, and a more glorious presence, with the hope that this glorious picture will encourage us to a greater hope. But before we begin, I'm going to pause and pray. You're welcome to pray along with me in your hearts. Heavenly Father, as we gather together, We pray that you would help us to find our hope in you and to be encouraged by you to a greater hope. We need you to do this. For Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a beautiful article that I read once called The Crane Wife. And in it, the author, C.J. Hauser, writes about her time that she spent on a scientific expedition. It was in preparation for a novel that she was writing about uh, where one of the central components was a whooping crane. And so she went on this scientific expedition to kind of study more about cranes. But the timing of this trip came right after she broke off her own engagement of three years. And in the article, she's dealing with the loss of the relationship and she's coming to realize how it was that she stayed in this relationship despite the fact that it was toxic and hurtful. And to kind of come to understand what kept her there, she tells this story. She says, one day as we were coming back out of the reserve, we were watching the cranes, uh, we often would see wild pigs as we traveled. And often what we would do is we would make bets about how many wild pigs we might see on our drive home. And so this night, halfway through the trip, I decided to bet reasonably. We usually saw four wild pigs, and I hoped for five, but I bet three because I figured it was the most that could be expected. Warren, an 84-year-old member of the expedition, bet wildly, optimistically, way too high. 20 pigs, Warren said. He rested his interlaced figures on his soft chest, and then we laughed and we slapped the vinyl seats at his boldness. But the thing is, we saw 20 pigs on the drive home that night. And in the thick of our celebrations, I realized how sad it was that I had bet so low, that I wouldn't even let myself imagine receiving as much as I had hoped for. What I learned to do in my relationship with my fiance was to survive on less. At what should have been the breaking point but wasn't, I learned that he had cheated on me. Why did I need to know that he had been monogamous? Why did I need to have and discuss inconvenient feelings about this history? I decided then to not be a woman who needed things. I decided that I would need less, and then less, and then less, and I got very good at this what she came to realize is she stayed in this relationship because she didn't dare to hope that there could be something more. But what John shows us in this passage that we are looking at today is that it's not that we need to live in a world unless, less and less and less, but that what we need to do is we need to begin to see that the problem isn't that we are hoping too much, but we are hoping too little. And John wants us to see the beauty of what our hope can be by showing us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth in this passage. John starts this passage with God remaking the world in verse 1, where he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In this verse, he's reflecting the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, where it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. And John reflects the language showing God recreating the heavens and the earth. But this new creation is not like what I see happening all around me where I live in Raleigh. Perhaps this is what you've seen around you. I live in an older neighborhood, and what's happening is people are coming and buying the older houses, and they're tearing them down to the ground and then building something new. One neighbor was telling me of his friend who found out that he could make more money by tearing down his house and selling the lot than selling the house and the lot together. But this is not what God is doing in this passage. He doesn't see this world as a tear down, so that he can get to the more valuable land. But what we see in this passage is God coming into a world that he loves, a world that he treasures, and bringing it back to the glory that he had made it to have in the beginning. It's a rehab, not a teardown. And the word new in this passage that John uses has that sense of newness in quality, or newness in essence rather than newness in time. In other words, he's picturing a renewed, a restored, a recreated world. God takes the created world that in the beginning he looked at and said, it is good, it is beautiful, it is glorious. And he makes it to be that once again. This is what he means when he says in verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. He takes the world that is marred and scarred and brings it back to be perfect and good again. He restores and cleanses it as far as the curse is found that allows what is good to be more clearly seen, experienced, and held on to. John gives us a sense of what this is like by telling us that in this world there will be no more sea. Now, we live in a state with a beautiful coastline, and and if you hear that there will be no more sea, you might feel sad to think that you can't go see the, the beauty of sunsets over beaches or to hear the crashing waves. But in this passage, by saying that there's no more sea, he's not talking geographically or geologically, but symbolically. Because in the Bible, the sea often represents something uncontrollable, unmanageable, fearful, chaotic. Which is why in Revelation chapter 4, what you see is a glassy sea that is around the throne of God. Which is a way that John is showing us that in the presence of the Almighty, there is no chaos. And what John shows us is that this is a new world that God restores that is free from uncertainty, free from fear, free from chaos, free from anxiety. We even see this in verse 25 of the passage when we read and the gates of the city will never be shut by day and there will be no night there john is telling us that the sources of fear and anxiety in this world will one day no longer exist we will not have to fear the darkness we will not have to check twice to make sure the doors are locked We will not have to worry about things that go bump in the night because God will restore this world to be a place where evil has no presence, where fear is no more. When you think about it, so much of what weighs on our hearts, so much of the substance of our anxiety is that kind of longing, that kind of hope to live in that kind of world. But the reality is, is that we know that that is not the case now. How often do you struggle to sleep in the middle of the night because of your anxiety, because of your worry? How often do you wake up in the morning with the taste of stress in your mouth? What is it that stresses you? What is it that worries you? Is it not the lingering and pervasive threat of chaos, the lingering and pervasive threat of decay, the lingering and pervasive pervasive threat of evil? What wears us down is the reality that we still live in a world where all is not right. We live with the fear of cancer, the uncertainty of the economy, the lingering pain of a pandemic, the wound of broken relationships, the pictures of our children being slaughtered in their school and our grandmothers being shot in our grocery stores. We see the reality of decay and evil around us. And what we see in all these pictures is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 8 as a world that is in bondage to decay. But John wants us to know that that bondage does not endure. What John wants us to see clearly is the picture of a world where those things will no longer exist. John shows us a world that is recreated to remove all that decays, all that destroys, so that we know that the good will endure. God created this world to be a place of delight, not dread, s- satisfaction, not stress, peace, not problems. And sin brought into this world and destroyed the place where we were meant to dwell secure with our Father. But God will one day make that place again where pain, chaos, stress, and uncertainty will not be remembered. Now the reason this is important to understand because in the midst of our trauma, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our stress, Is a right hope a right hope that it's easy to begin to shut down and say you can just live on less you just need less but don't you see that the pains that you are experiencing in the present the pains that you have experienced in the past are a real crying out how Long, O oh Lord, until we dwell secure. Do you see your anxiety not as a sign that you lack faith, but as a testimony that you are made to live in this kind of world? A world where there is no night, a world where there is no fear, no darkness, no sorrow. John wants you to know that such a world is not a utopian fantasy or a quixotic quest. But your longing for peace is good. Your longing for peace is right. Your longing for peace is true. Do you see, your hope is not that it's too big. Because you've learned to be disappointed. The problem is that your hope is often found in the wrong place. Hope is not found in a stormless world. Hope is found in the presence of the Almighty who can keep us safe in the midst of the storms. And John shows us a picture of where it is that he brings us through the storms to the safe haven of dwelling with him. But it's not just a perfect place that he imagines, but also a perfect people. And this is important for us to realize because a part of how we can obtain the peace that is pictured here is through what God does in his people. Perhaps you've seen the TV series The Good Place, which is a series about fictional characters who end up in uh afterlife. And to me I found this show fascinating as a as a minister to see what they would picture in terms of, of hell and heaven. And it was interesting because they never speak of God. They never speak of a deity in this afterlife. But at the end of the series, as the, the characters end up in this perfect place, in a, in a heaven, what happens is they gain all that they wanted in this world, all the pleasures that they could imagine in this world, but in the end, they found it ultimately unsatisfying. And so at the end of The Good Place, what they choose is instead of continuing to exist in a perfect world where all their pleasures could be given, the desire to cease existing and merge back into the universe. And in a way that's logic, in a way that's realistic. Because what that's showing is is that if you don't change, you can't really enjoy a peaceful world. You can't really enjoy the pleasures of perfection. And so what we see in this passage is John showing that not only does God change the circumstances of the world by recreating it, renewing it, but he also changes its inhabitants. So often we think that our circumstances are what stands between us and happiness we often think that if we get the right job if we have the right spouse if we have the right children then we'll experience more peace but again what this is doing is it's putting our hopes in the wrong place putting our hopes in the wrong direction and what we see here is john showing us the way that our hope should be directed again not towards our circumstances but to the one who heals us. And so he says this in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here John uses the imagery of a bride adorned for her husband to reflect how God himself labors to make his people more glorious. It is important to know that John, as he speaks of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is not focusing on the bricks and mortar of the city, but on the people who dwell in that city. Jerusalem represents a city where people dwell in the presence of God. And so when John speaks of Jerusalem, he's speaking of all who are God's people. But again, he speaks of it as something that is renewed. And just like the world, it's not a brand new people that God creates, but a people he has restored to be good. And this is what is pictured by the long description of the city that We read towards the end of the chapter. John is taken in verse 10 to this high mountain that's far enough away that he is able to take in all the glorious things that he sees. Just like how you have to sometimes take a step back in order to capture on your camera the picture that you want to have. John takes a step back in order to be able to take in all the glorious things that God does for his people. And he describes the city with descriptions of walls adorned with jewels, gates of pearl, and streets of transparent gold. But in all these things, keep in mind that he's not trying to capture the architecture. But he's trying to show us the glory of the people of God. He's describing the glory of God's people sparkling with glory like precious jewels. But why is it that John is going to such great lengths to, to capture the beauty of the people? It's because this is again one of the things that lingers in our heart, that brings about despair, that brings about discouragement. I recently read a quote by sociologist Alan Ehrenberg from his study of the history of depression. And he says this about depression. He says, inadequacy is the pathology of contemporary depression. Inadequacy is the pathology of contemporary depression. That is the idea that what brings depression, what brings despair into our own hearts is that pervasive awareness that we are inadequate. Do you feel that? Inadequate? Don't you see the way that that specter of inadequacy so often drives you? The way that you try to find and keep glory in your work, glory in your wit, glory in your well-being, glory in your wealth, glory in your wisdom. We long to find glory that we can hold on to and not lose. And we see it as a sad reality that a lot in our life is that it never shows up. But more than often than not, that glory is elusive to us because we are grasping at the wrong kind of glory. But notice in verse 22, as it speaks of this new Jerusalem, John says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you see the backwards nature of that verse? Kings go out of the city to find glory, but here the kings are coming in with their glory. So often we are plagued with looking for glory, trying to find it, and being disappointed, and beginning to give up hope that the glory that we feel like we need in order to look at ourselves in the mirror, is elusive. And we can give up hope. But here John is showing us that the glory that we long for, the glory that we hope for, can be found, but not out of our own efforts, but out of the efforts of him. Do you hear how John speaks of the city, the people of God, in verse 11? He says, that this city is glorious because it has the glory of God. You see, that is why we often feel inadequate, because we are made to have a divine glory radiating into us. And the only thing that can satisfy our longing for glory is a divine glory to come and to rest upon you. Think about the great benediction from the book of Numbers, where it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. What is he saying in that blessing? He's saying that the greatest blessing that we can receive is to see God's glory radiating onto us. And until then, our hearts will long for that glory. And this is what this passage is showing us happening. Commentators say that the reason that there's these 12 different stones is a a reflection in this new city of what happened to the people of Israel. In Exodus, as God is describing what the priest should wear, he describes a a vest, an ephod that the priest should wear, that had on it 12 different stones, and each of those stones had on it written one of the tribes of Israel. And Aaron, the high priest, would take that vest, put it on, and bring it into the Holy of Holies. And through that, to symbolically bring the people of Israel into the presence of God. so that his glory might shine on them. And after that is when he would go out and he would speak to them the benediction, saying that what just happened in symbol is what you get to experience, God's glory shining onto you. And here what John wants to see is this is what we get one day. To live in a world where that divine glory radiates into us. To get to live into a world one day where this glory will be the light of our day. There's a beauty in this passage that it tells us that there is no sun in this world. Why? Because God's glory is the light of this world. And so what that means is that the radiant glory of God that caused Moses' face to glow just seeing reflection of it is so powerfully present in this world that there is no need for light so that in this world when you look at a mirror what would light up your face what would show you your face is his glory shining into your eyes what illuminates the world is God's glory what warms your body is God's glory to dwell in the glory of God causes these people to be filled with that glory. And this is what John wants us to see. That this is the world that you are made for. To be so bathed in God's glory. Shining onto you that it warms your body and it lights your eyes. But so often we feel inadequate. Because we realize that we disappoint ourselves. But again it's because we are hoping in the wrong direction. Our hope isn't found in our ability to be adequately glorious, but in his ability to bring that glory to us. But all these things come not out of our own efforts to reach up to heaven and to bring that reality into our life, but this passage shows us again and again that all this happens with the glorious presence of God being with his people. And this is clearly the emphasis of this passage. Very little describes the nature of the new heavens and the new earth, but a lot speaks about God's presence. And this is really the logic of the passage. It's why verse 1 and verse 2 are followed with verse 3. Verse 1 speaks of the more glorious place. Verse 2 speaks of the more glorious people. And then verse 3 speaks of a more glorious presence, saying, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be there as their God. Do you hear that repetition even in that verse of God's presence? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be with them as their God. What does it look like to dwell with God? To dwell in that kingdom is to forever know that the promise of that benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, is real. To dwell as recipients of the blessing and the glory of God. To never look at yourself and sigh. To never think of your failures and cringe. This world will not know such moments. Because all who are there are going to have that glory shining into them and around them. And to know that it never fades because it comes from a sun that never sets. When you realize that this is what you long for. It helps you to direct your hopes into the right place. To not change the storms around you but to adjust your sails so that you are driven in the midst of the storms to this picture to this reality because what we need is not for our circumstances to change but to recalibrate our hope to him So much of our discontentment is with the things that are around us. Discontentment with our house, discontentment with our body, discontentment with our work, discontentment with our marriage, discontentment with our lot in life, discontentment with our satisfaction in the things of this world. But this passage tells us that we are discontent with the wrong things. In verse 6, it says this, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And here what John is bringing out to us is the voice of Jesus, saying that all of our discontentments, all of our longings, will never be satisfied in this world, but can only be satisfied in him. The way that our longings, the way that our hopes are satisfied is ultimately by thirsting rightly. By longing rightly for the living water. What is required from us is our hope to be oriented towards Jesus. And in a way, this is what the warning verses in this passage are about. Like in verse 8, when it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What is that warning saying? It's saying, don't put your hope in the things of this world. All of those descriptions Are descriptions of people that seek to find joy in fleeting pleasures like sexual immorality, to find glory out of your own strength or in cunning like in murder or lying. All of these things are trying to find in this world a satisfaction for a hope that is deeper than anything that this world can ever satisfy. But John warns us to hope in the right direction. How is it that our hope will be satisfied? It's only when we drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. What is that spring? It's the one who said, I am the living water. And then went out to the cross and said, I thirst. Because he was taking on to himself all of our failures so that he could be the one that makes us glorious. It's the one who said, it is done because on the cross he finished what we could never accomplish. The perfect sacrifice to satisfy the penalty of sin. But the way that we obtain this is not by us reaching up to heaven but from heaven coming down to be with us. And John says, this is how you conquer. To adjust your sails to drive you to him. Friends, God gives us this passage so that you see that the hopes of your heart Can be true, but not because of what you do, not because of what goes around you in this world, but because of what Jesus does for his people. That he comes into a world that is broken to redeem it, he comes into a world that is in bondage of decay to free it, he comes into a world that is filled with tears to bring comfort. He comes into a world of people who have compassion fatigue, who despair, who are discouraged, to give them hope by being hope itself. The high priest, as he came into the temple, it says in Exodus, would bring the stones on his chest so that he could bear them in his heart in remembrance of them before the presence of the Lord. You see, that is what Jesus did. He bore our names on his heart as he went to the cross so that he could bring us into the presence of the glory of God that we might know the fulfillment of dwelling in his presence, of experiencing his radiating glory, and of knowing the goodness of being with a Father who loves us. You see, verse 7 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is something that I don't know if I could dare to hope. To think that I am the son of God, that I am one who is treasured by the Father. But If that's my hope, then it gives me the ability to maintain myself in the midst of the storms of life because I know that if he is my father, then he will protect me. The award-winning author, Kate Camillo wrote Because of Winn-Dixie in the Newbery award-winning book, The Tale of Despero. And she tells this story. She said, I was standing in the grocery store checkout line and a small boy walked past me. Once, twice and then three times. And when he came back the fourth time, he was holding his mother's hand. That's her, he said, and he pointed at me. Don't point, honey, said his mother. And then to me, she said, my son's class is reading the tale of Despero, and my son, for some reason, thinks that you're the author of that book. I am that author, I said. Oh, she said, that's lovely. Well, then is it okay if he asks you a question? Absolutely, I said. Go ahead, honey. She said to the boy, the child then looked up at me and said, what I want to know is, will it be okay? Will Despero be okay? Will that mouse be okay? Yes, I told him. Oh, he said, good. Now I can relax my heart. Yes, I said again, you can relax your heart. And then she remarked, oh, his heart, oh, my heart, Oh, all of our hearts. You see, that's what we have here in this passage. The author of life, the author of our story, stands before us and says, in the end, it will be okay. Because he is writing your story, not just as your creator, not even just as your redeemer, but as your father. And as we hear the good voice of our father telling us, It will be okay. We can relax our hearts. When our hope is not in the circumstances of this world or in our ability to manage this world, but is in his goodness, in his voice that it will be okay, we can relax our hearts and allow our hope to grow because we know that our hope is secure because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because we can know that our hope is secure. Because there is no sea around the throne of the Almighty. We can know that our hope is secure. Because all that he says is true. We can know that our hope is secure. Because the author says it will be okay. Let us pray. Our good God and Father, we pray that you would help us to rest in your goodness and in your words. And in the midst of all the storms around us. To come again to your voice. That we might hope in your work and not our own. Amen. Please stand as we sing one more song.